thank you, Ali and Jonas. Uh, actually, uh, originally I thought I was going to preach on um, this passage about the little children as well as the rich man, uh, young ruler coming to Jesus, but uh, I am trying to be concise, and you would have been here too long, probably, if I had tried to preach on both of those passages, so I am going to limit myself to this passage, verses 13 to 16, on Jesus uh, inviting the little children who come to him. It's a a well-known passage. It's a beloved passage. It's a picture of Jesus in being kind and gentle to little ones, and, and, and it's just it's beautiful. So we're going we're gonna to dive in this one together. What we have been talking about is this, this concept of the kingdom of God. We talked about it last week. We are going to talk about it this week as well. And just to remind you, uh, the kingdom of God is, uh, is an administration. It is a rule. It is a reign. It is a way of ordering things. So for example, um, if, if you have a sports team and a new coach or a new manager comes in, then that coach or manager uh, comes with their administration. And that administration just doesn't mean, doesn't mean just people. Uh, it means things like a philosophy of sport, you know, a philosophy of way of doing things. It means the values. It means the priorities, right? So, for example, a new manager comes in and he says, look, you know, the, the old way of doing things was this team really focused on defense. My philosophy is that the best defense is a good offense, so we're going we're gonna to change the way we do things to be a more offensive team. Uh, maybe the old way uh, was to value the uh, leadership of, of certain individuals and really rely on the skills of those certain individuals ar- around your team. And, and this manager says, look, I value team effort. We're going to spread the offense around a little bit. Or maybe um, the priorities are, are, are different. So f- perhaps um, uh, the, the previous administration, really their priority was team development through their, through their uh, farm system or something. And this, this new manager says, you know what, we're going to go out and get our, uh, our star players from other teams. Whatever. The point is, is that it's a complete switch. It's a whole new way of doing things. And, and when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about his kingdom. He's talking about how if you become part of his kingdom, he is going to mess with your philosophy of life. He's going to mess with your values. He's going to mess with your priorities. And he is going to tell you that if you're going to be part of my kingdom, then you are going to have to uh, jettison, get rid of the values that you may have once known from another place, and you are going to have to adopt my values, my philosophy, my priorities. Now, last week we said that Jesus demonstrates in that story about, or in those parables, that the the kingdom is supremely valuable, He talks about it like a treasure. He talks about it like a a pearl of great price. And what we learned was, was that the kingdom is so valuable, Jesus actually goes so far as to say that it is worth giving up anything else in this life in order to have it. Now think about this. Anything. You have things in your life that are uber duper important to you. 
that matter to you so deeply. And Jesus says, not a single one of those things, and I don't care what it is you're thinking of. It could be family. It could be spouses. It could be uh, any kind of valuable. That thing, if it is an obstacle to the kingdom of God, it is actually worth losing for the sake of the kingdom of God. And by the way, that's just another reminder to you. I know I'm getting hyper already, but... um, can, can, we, can we get away from the idea, please, that Jesus was just a nice guy sharing some homespun wisdom? And can we just confront the reality that Jesus is either exactly who he said he was, the son of the living God, who has the right to demand our total, complete allegiance because of who he is, or he was an utter nut job? Because people who aren't the son of God and say to people like you and me, uh, I, I am more valuable than anything else in your life. Cut, if you have to cut all your blood ties, if you have to cut all your material ties, if you have to cut all your friendship ties in order to have me, it is utterly worth it. We would say, you're some crazy cult leader and I need to escape from you. But if you are the son of God, if you are the one who lived the life who sh- we should have lived and died the death we should have died so that we could be in relationship with him, then it actually is perfectly legitimate for Jesus to say that. I just got to get that out there so that we can carry on. Um, last week we saw that Jesus' kingdom, though, is, it, is, it is hidden. It is hidden right under our noses. It is hidden right in plain sight because we don't actually understand the value of the kingdom because it is so radically different than the kingdom values of the world in which we live. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Our culture tells you, stand up for yourself. Look out for number one. Jesus comes along and he says, in my kingdom, you should turn, your, turn the other cheek You should pour yourself out in service of others. Yes, you should love your family. Yes, you should love your friends, but you should also love your enemies. Our culture says, listen, you got to do what is right for you. You got to do what feels right. You got to search your heart, follow your heart, do what you think is right. Rihanna is a cultural icon. She's well-known by many, many people, and she has a lot of influence in our culture, and she also speaks the language of our culture. In a recent interview in Vogue magazine, she said this, I have always believed that when you follow your heart or your gut, when you really follow the things that feel great to you, you can never lose, because settling is the worst feeling in the world. Jesus responds to that and says, don't follow your heart. Follow my heart. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what Jesus says. He says, deny yourself. You want things? These things are, are, are there to kill you and destroy you. And you need to desi- deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what Jesus says. Submit to my yoke. Yes, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And we love that. Ah, Come to Jesus, all of us who are weary and burdened. And then he continues and says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Yes, Jesus is there for those of us who are feeling weary and burdened, absolutely, but Jesus is there to put a yoke on us. Look, our culture says, make a name for yourself. 
Get out there and make a name for yourself. You know, there's this rise of this weird cultural phenomenon called the Instagram influencer. Instagram influencers exist for the very purpose of self-promotion. If I can make myself popular, if people want to follow me, if people want to listen to me, if people want to, want, to, want to be like me, then I make money at it somehow. I don't understand that economic side of things. I just know that, this, that the, the whole point of it is self-promotion. And that's what the, what, what the culture tells you. You've got to put yourself out there and exalt yourself. And Jesus comes along and he says, everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's why the kingdom of God is hidden in plain sight because everything it says is contrary to what our hearts and our culture wants. We don't realize that it's a treasure. So why would anybody want to enter the kingdom of God? Why would anybody want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Well, the only way is, is when God enables you to see the kind of treasure that it is. That's the only way. He opens your eyes to recognize the value of the kingdom. He opens your eyes to see that there are things that are far more valuable than, than self-regard, uh, than reputation, than material wealth and all that kind of stuff. There are far more, th more valuable things, but you need to be, have your eyes open to see it. Okay, I'm not going to keep preaching last week's sermon. I'm going to start preaching this week's, this week's sermon, okay? How do you become part of this kingdom? Okay? I value it now. I'm, God has opened my eyes to see the value of it. What do I do? How do I get into the kingdom? That's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. In verse 15, Jesus gives this very cryptic statement. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And the reason it's cryptic is because Jesus, he talks about this, this little child. You've got to be like a little child. You've got to be somehow spiritually like little children. And again, he says little child. So we're talking really small kids here. Uh, we're talking like four and under kind of thing. We're talking toddlers and babies. We're not talking teenagers or tweens probably. He's talking about very, very young children. Now when we think of children, typically we think of like immaturity, right? Kids are immature. They need to grow up. And is that what Jesus is talking about? We need to become spiritually immature to enter the kingdom of God? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying we need to become childish. He's saying we need to become childlike, and they're very different. Childishness, childlikeness are not the same thing at all. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three different types of characters in this story. We've got the disciples, we've got children, and we've got Jesus. And we're going to discover, hopefully, what has to happen for us to become part of the kingdom of God. Let's go. The scene is this. Jesus is teaching and preaching and traveling through villages, and he is getting popular. He is a sensation. He is a... a, a, a he has notoriety. People are very interested in him. And so crowds are gathering around him. And some of those crowds that are gathering around him and following him, they have little kids with them. And these people are trying to get their little children to Jesus. 
They're trying to, to get Jesus to put his hands on them, it says in the text. And what that means is, is to have him put his hand on their forehead, touch them, and bless them. And that's because to have a rabbi do that, to have a rabbi kind of, you know, take notice of your child and bless them is considered a, a, a wonderful thing, a wonderful gift to have. And Jesus is seen as one of these really important rabbis. Now, maybe some of these kids are sick. Maybe they're crippled. Maybe some people thought Jesus could heal their children. We don't really know. We just know that they're coming to try to bring their kids to Jesus and there's the disciples standing in the way. They are behaving like the security team of a celebrity, right? You know, they're, they're totally ripped in their tight t-shirts, wearing their shades, standing like this, looking around, saying, step back, step back, step back. Okay, probably not dressed like that, but it's the picture. The picture is of them kind of like a celebrity security team telling all these people, get back, get back, get back. And he's not, they're not letting these children get near Jesus. And it says in the text that Jesus was indignant about that. Now, indignant is not a word we use right now in our culture, in our time. I probably, none of you have ever gotten upset at something and said, by George, I'm indignant. You probably have said, I'm mad, right? Because that's what it means. Jesus is angry. One of the best translations probably of this word is irate. He sees an injustice, okay? That's what he sees here. The disciples keeping the children away from Jesus is in his eyes an actual injustice. And he gets angry and he says, let those children in. Do not hinder them. Let them come to me. Now, why is Jesus so angry? Is he angry because the disciples have a low view of children? Probably not, actually. Reason being, in that culture, that culture was an adult-centered culture, meaning children, you know in traditional cultures, maybe in some of the homes that you grew up in, children were supposed to be seen and not heard. That was the kind of culture that the disciples grew up in and lived in and uh, swam in, so to speak. It's a little different than our culture. Maybe, uh, maybe the pendulum needed to swing from one direction to the other, but ours seems to have swung a, like a long way in the other direction. We kind of have a child-centered culture. And I'm not saying that, that everything about that is bad, but certainly these men were products of their time. And so it wasn't so much that they had a low view of children that made Jesus so angry with them. It was because they had a low view of themselves. No, not a low view of themselves. It's because they had a high view of themselves. Scratch that. It was because they had a high view of themselves. You see, if the disciples knew themselves, if they understood themselves and their relationship to Jesus, they would have realized that they were no more deserving of being part of Jesus' circle, of being accepted by him, of being in his presence than these little kids were. In other words, if they understood that they were more like those children than unlike those children, Jesus would not have been so angry with them. Think about how the disciples became disciples. You go back in the story of the Gospels, and these guys are fishermen. They're just working Joes, doing their job, or they're tax collectors. 
you know, uh, Levi was a tax collector. This is a guy who basically sold out his own people to get rich off their backs. The guy's a scumbag. And he is sitting at his tax booth, and Jesus walks by and says, Hey, you, Levi, hmm? what? A Jewish rabbi is talking to me? What do you want? Come follow me. What? The disciples are out there fishing, and they're coming back, and they've done like a lousy job of fishing, fishing all night. They got nothing. So apparently they're not even great fishermen. And Jesus says, hey, you, Peter, come follow me. I'm going to teach you to be a fisher of men. None of these guys had qualifications that made them deserving of being in Christ's inner circle. They were not the best educated. They didn't come from the best families and homes. They didn't have the best personality. They didn't pass the personality test. Jesus just chose them. In other words, them being part of his community was completely an act of grace. It was an act of his mercy. But here's what happened to them. Remember, now they're part of Jesus' entourage. They're, they're, They're part of it. They've done nothing to deserve it, but they're getting the, the notoriety that comes with, hey, you're part of Jesus' entourage. You're part of Jesus, uh, you're part of his inner circle when they come to a new village and all the crowds are around and they're pushing the crowds back and they're saying, hey, you know, stay away from our boy here. Uh, don't get too close. He's very busy, very important man. They're feeling very, very proud of it. Uh, there was a show, I, I've never watched this show, and I do not encourage you to watch it because I think I've heard it's actually kind of a bad show, but there was a show called Entourage, which was about some... Um, a uh, very famous actor uh, and his buddies. He had his posse of guys who, because they were his friends, they got to experience the high life of living like a celebrity because they were connected to this guy. And the disciples were starting to feel proud of their status in their connection with Jesus. And we know that's true because if you go back one chapter to Mark chapter 9, you read a story about the disciples getting into a fight with each other. They start arguing with one another. They know that Jesus is famous and that Jesus is special and that Jesus is doing something big and he keeps talking about this kingdom of God and they start talking about, hey, uh, so who's gonna be be a top spot in the kingdom of God? Like, obviously Jesus is gonna be the king, but he's gotta have a number two. Who's gonna be his number two? Well, I think I should be the number two because I'm the best at, 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 at it. Or I should be number two because Jesus likes me best. And they're arguing with one another because they've gotten into their heads, you see, that their proximity to Jesus, which was based entirely by grace because they did nothing to deserve this proximity to Jesus, it made them special, it made them important. And they started categorizing. They started categorizing the people around them. Are they on the inside or are they on the outside? Are they uh, w- worthy of being uh, in Jesus' presence or, or are they not worthy of Jesus' time? Because you see, they started looking down on people because of the position of grace that they were experiencing. So they were using grace, believe it or not, to actually look down on other people. They didn't hate children But they thought Jesus was too busy, he was too important uh, to be bothered with these children. So they had forgotten that they had been accepted by undeserved grace, and now they're denying the same undeserved grace to these children. And listen, this is, it is shocking how easily you can fall into this. This is a warning to the church. See, we, we can somehow, by dint of our 
terrible sinful nature, we can somehow take this beautiful concept called grace and twist it so that we actually can, can start to categorize people and, and start to decide whether people should be in or, or should be out. We may not actually act on it, and we may not actually do anything about it, but we can have the attitude, okay? We can have the attitude. Um, I don't usually make, like, really long illustrations, but I'm going to do that today because I have a perfect illustration of this that comes from literature. I was an English major. I love literature. One of my favorite writers uh, is a woman by the name of Flannery O'Connor. She's a Catholic writer from the mid-20th century, and she wrote a phenomenal uh, short story about this kind of thing called Revelation. And in this story, it's about a woman by the name of Mrs. Turpin. Mrs. Turpin is a proper southern woman around the 1930s. And the story uh, opens with her going to the doctor's office with her husband because he's got something wrong with his legs. And they sit down in the doctor's office and they look around and they see there's all kinds of people in the doctor's office waiting for their turn. And they're from different races and from different classes. And uh, some she, she sees are different ethnicities than her and she categorizes them. And some people are different class than her and she categorizes them. Some people even look different than her physically. There's some people who are very overweight and so she categorizes them. But she does see another person kind of like her, another white woman, not quite as good as her, but, you know, she's better than the other, you know, trash sitting around this uh, doctor's office, and she starts talking to her, and they start talking, and they kind of, you know, they kind of cluck their tongues at other people, you know, in a kind of a passive way, a little bit like the publican, you know, the publican, the story of the publican and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee is standing uh, before the temple, and he says, oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like this publican over here. It's this passive, aggressive, judgmental way of talking, and that's what Mrs. Turpin is doing about the people in this room, and, and uh, she's like, you know, you know how they are, and those kind of people are like this, and she's very self-righteous. And in this room, there's this young girl, young woman, reading a book called Human Development. It looks like a college textbook, okay? She's reading, and she's listening to this, and she's just getting angrier and angrier and angrier, listening to this self-righteous Mrs. Turpin keep talking. She's blathering on and on about how, she, how good she is and how others are wrong, you know. And finally, this girl, whose name is Mary Grace, which is a hint, she takes this book, and she gets up, and she chucks it at Mrs. Turpin, hits her right in the eye, and then she jumps on her and wrestles her to the floor, and she starts choking her, <laughs> okay? I'm not saying do this, all right? Uh, I'm just saying it's a good story. Anyhow, so people rip her off and, and pull her off there, and she's kind of writhing on the ground because she's now on the floor because she's now having like a seizure or something like that. Mrs. Turpin, she's like all messed up, and she gets up and she she looks over this uh, this girl and she says, "Do you have something to say to me?" And Mary Grace looks up at her and says, "Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog." Now again. All young people, just because the minister said that, those words doesn't mean you should say those words to anybody, okay? This is not an endorsement, but this is what she says. Now, Mrs. Turpin leaves. She goes home. She's been traumatized, so she spends the afternoon in bed right, recovering from this problem. But, but she, she's laying there, and she can't help but think that somehow God has spoken to her through this voice of this angry young woman named Mary Grace. And she can't really figure it out. And so she starts arguing with God, trying to 
figure out why he would send her this kind of message, right? And she starts saying, why me? She rumbled. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to. And break my back to the bone every day working. And do for the church. Exactly how am I like them? If you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then. I couldn't quit working, and, or I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, she growled. Lounge about the sidewalks all day drinking root beer, dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. And then a final surge kind of roars up inside her and she says, Who do you think you are? To God, of course. And then this is what O'Connor writes. At that moment, the sun sets and she sees a purple streak in the sky. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. They were whole companies of white trash and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. So picture Jacob's stairway to heaven. Those of you who remember in Genesis, he got this picture of a stairway to heaven. So this is what Turpin sees. She sees this bridge from earth to heaven. And lo and behold, on this bridge, people dressed in white, pure clothing, but she recognizes them as, as losers and white trash and outsiders and lunatics, people with all kinds of problems who in this life nobody would give a second look at. And they are dancing their way into heaven, leaping and laughing and shouting hallelujah. That's what she sees, okay? But then she saw, to her surprise, coming at the end of the parade. So this is behind all of those. Listen to this. Oh, it's so good, okay? A tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable, as they had always been, for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtue was being burned away. In a moment, the vision faded, in the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. See, she was one of those people who by God's grace had been given good sense and then used it properly. She was a proper good Christian woman. And she had taken this grace that God had given her and she had begun to kind of classify the people around her and decide who was worthy of God's grace and who deserved to be in the front of the line. The very same thing that the disciples were doing. And that's what Jesus saw as so infuriating. How dare you use my grace that way? 
You see, the church is supposed to be a community that is completely, utterly different than every other community. Every institution you are a part of is classifying people by some metric. It might be education, it might be competence, it might be social status, it might be finances, but people are getting slotted all the time. The unique thing about the church is, is that it's supposed to be a community that is completely equalized because we are all, 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 all participants by grace. By grace. By wonderful, wonderful, beautiful grace. See, this is the second point. Why does Jesus point to the children? The way we avoid becoming a Mrs. Turpin. Please say you don't want to be Mrs. Turpin. The way you no longer be Mrs. Turpin is you got to become like a child. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, two things, basically. Simply put, first of all, what's wonderful about being a little child? A little child knows that they are utterly dependent on others for everything. You put a two-year-old or a three-year-old in your house, leave them alone for an hour, and if they're not dead, your house will be destroyed. Because they don't have the knowledge or understanding of how things work. And they just do what they want and they don't really understand how to keep themselves safe, etc. The Bible says, listen, God is your father, okay? You depend on him for absolutely everything. You do not have the resources to make yourself worthy of his grace. Listen, you're playing at the park with your three-year-old and it's time to go home and the three-year-old comes up to you and says, carry me. Your three-year-old does not say to you, carry me because I put my toys away this morning. Your three-year-old does not say to you, carry me because I made my bed when I got up. Your three-year-old doesn't say, carry me because I ate all my cereal at breakfast. Your three-year-old just says, carry me. They don't need any conditions. They don't try to sell themselves to you. They don't try to make themselves worthy of it because they know that they got nothing to offer. They just want to be carried. I'm tired. Help me. That's it. Listen, you know what the greatest obstacle to growth in your spiritual development personally and our spiritual development together corporately as a church is? You know what it is? It's our unwillingness to admit we are needy. It is our unwillingness to admit that we are weak. It is our unwillingness to admit that we are messed up. Some of us are are not so unwilling. Many of us are so unwilling. Listen, People, I, have, I don't know how many times I have heard people say, well, I didn't want to call the, call the pastor for help. And they say, because I know he's busy. And I'm like, you're paying me. You're my boss. Like, you're not, but you are. <laughs> you need me, call me. That's what I'm being paid for. Or I don't want to bother my life group with my issues because they sound so petty and small. Or I don't want to call a mature Christian in the church because I don't want to bother them and, and weigh them down with the burdens that I'm, I'm suffering underneath. We, we make these excuses, but really what it is, is is we don't want to be needy. We don't want to look weak. Everybody wants to be a helper and nobody wants to be helped. 
But Jesus says right here, the first step of life in the kingdom is an admission that you are absolutely desperately needy. You know, the whole, the whole partnership that we have with Christian Counseling Center that we are trying to push to you and let you know that you can just call them and get counseling, no questions asked, on Grace Valley's dime. It is our first step toward trying to encourage this us as a community to be open and honest and vulnerable about our needs. I, we're not saying you, we all should be walking around going, oh, I suck and I'm damaged and I'm a mess and, you know, I, I just need everybody to help me all the time. We're not saying that you need to wallow in your need, but when you have need, which we all have, we need to be open and willing and able to reach out to others and not simply wait until they ask us. Sometimes you are really good at hiding the fact that you're needy. Listen, I have a life group and I have a leadership team development. Life group, I, I do okay generally in terms of being needy, but with the leadership group, you know, one week it's me teaching them stuff about theology, it's the next week telling them I'm a terrible father and a terrible pastor and I need them to encourage me because I feel like I'm falling apart. And it's great. Because sometimes they admonish me and say, oh, stop, your belly aching. And sometimes they say, dude, that's really terrible. And every time they say, can we pray for you? And that's how we gain spiritual growth and development together. I don't, you don't have to like stand up here and, you know, share your laundry or whatever it is to the whole world. But you got to share it somewhere. And the counseling ministry is a way to give you the start. But we're hoping, in all honesty, we're hoping that that's not where it ends. We're hoping that through it, through that ministry, you become comfortable with sharing with maybe a couple people, maybe in your life group, or maybe a couple men if you're a guy, or a couple women if you're a girl in the church, some of the stuff that you, you are dealing with, and, and invite people to carry the burden with you, as Paul says in Galatians 6. Um, the second thing, though, if you're going to do that, you got to be like a child in the other in the in the other way described, or, or that we need to understand here. To recognize your need, but also you can only recognize your need if you are secure in your parents' love. This is the other part of it. Okay. The great thing about young children is is that they don't really if they're in a healthy home. All right? I know that there are homes that aren't healthy, but in a, in a relatively healthy home, most young children are not fretting about whether or not their parents love them. They assume it. And therefore, when they are at the park and they want to be carried, they just come up to them and they say, carry me. They don't say, if you could please find the time and if it's not too hard on your back and if you have the energy left, could you please maybe assist me in making our way home via you carrying me a little bit? They don't do that. They in, oftentimes in a very whiny voice, oh, I'm tired, carry me, I can't do it, carry me. Well, why? Because they know that their parent loves them and their parent may say no to the request, but the parent is gonna, isn't going to go, what kind of wimp are you? I'm out of here. You know that you are secure in the love of your parent. Well, the gospel, friends, is, is that Jesus loves you beyond your wildest dreams. The gospel is, is that Jesus died to prove it. If you ever want to know, does Jesus love me? Does he care about me? Just look at the cross. It is proof he was broken for you. You and I, we are needy, foolish sinners, okay? We are weak. We are, but God in his grace, you don't understand it, but you believe it. God in his grace, he chose you. 
He chose you. Why did he choose you? Why do you know that this is a treasure, that this, this relationship with God through Jesus Christ is a treasure, a pearl of great price? And there are literally millions of people in this country right now who have no clue of the value of the kingdom of God, and you do. Why? Why? Because you're smarter? No, you know that's not true. Because you had a better upbringing. Some of them had way better upbringings than you. Some of you are so messed up by the homes you grew up in. And yet you still, you still know the treasure of the gospel. Why? Because you're more humble than them? You don't want to say that, do you? It is the mystery of God's wonderful, remarkable grace. Oh, the great equalizer that is the gospel. You will find it in no other place, in no other institution. Okay. When that sinks into you, you cannot look down on others. You cannot dismiss others. You cannot. You can't. Racism has no place in the Christian church. Homophobia has no place in the Christian church. Classism has no place in the Christian church. In a Christian church that has embraced the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those things will necessarily get squeezed out like when you squeeze a sponge of every drop of water. The gospel will just squeeze that out of us. Last thing. Let's look at Jesus just in closing. You know, if anybody ever had the right to be selective about the company he kept. Wouldn't it be Jesus? If anybody had the right to say, look, I don't want to spend time with that class of people. Or I don't want to spend time with the people of that moral category. Or I don't want to spend time with those people from that different part of the world. Because I am a perfect man. I am in perfect fellowship with the living God. I am perfect. And I don't want to spend time with people who aren't at least really close to perfect, like me. If anybody had the right to do that, it would be Jesus. And what does he do instead? He doesn't just put his hand out and say, boom, kiddo, boom, kiddo, bless you, kiddo. He scoops him up. He scoops him up in his arms. Ancient Near, ancient Near Eastern men didn't do that. That was a sign of weakness. That was a feminine thing to do. You didn't carry your kids around. You let your wife carry your kids around. But he scoops them up in his arms. I picture him, you know, what's that? Snuggling your nose together, uh, tickling, just being affectionate, okay? He delights in them. And it shouldn't surprise us because the whole kingdom is upside down. The king is going to be upside down if the kingdom is upside down, right? The strong are out and the weak are in. The proud are out and the humble are in. The self-sufficient are out and the needy are in. That's the kingdom. Become like a child and just say, I want in. And you'll be in. Let's pray. God Almighty, thank you for the kingdom of God. Thank you for the ministry of Jesus. Thank you for the treasure that we have given and we have been given. Father, if any of us don't know this treasure, Lord, we pray that they will reach out for help to discover it. And for those of us who do know this kingdom, may we please be rid of the discrimination that 
lurks in the hearts of human beings. Squeeze it out of us and just fill us with more grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.